0: Good morning, church. Oh, man. Another beautiful Sunday morning, gray and snowy and wet. But I'm happy to be here. Uh, if you're listening online and could hear, maybe you had headphones on, I could hear the singing. I apologize. My voice had been pretty scratchy. Today was some challenging stuff. I went for it. I think I made most of those notes. But it was no picnic. Uh, I, I can tell you it is... It's a, it's a little bit of a bummer when you're looking forward to certain songs. I mean, like everybody else, I have songs that I like, songs that I like to sing. And then when you can't do it very well, it's doubly frustrating because uh, those do, these don't always come up. And this isn't uh, some sort of a, a slight to Leah, who chooses the songs. We shouldn't be singing the same stuff that I like every week. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But today, a couple of these songs are, are very special. So I did my best. I'm sure God is happy because uh, he puts up with a lot of things that are subpar from me. And somehow make something happen with it. So I'm more thankful for that than anything. If you're joining us today, we'll be in Zechariah again. If you are here last week, it was four visions. It was kind of very fast. I heard people that take notes took a lot of notes. Um, I won't apologize for it because I think it's the nature of the beast. But um, I will say in our small group, it was really interesting to have these discussions. If you've ever sat through conversations about visions or prophecy in the Bible... There's two ways that these could go a lot of times. We talked about this early on. We can talk about what we think it means and then try to find ourselves in there and and solve riddles that way. And you're going to get lost in these visions that they're super complex and they mean all these things that they don't have to mean. When we study them in context, I hope what you have seen is that these visions, although maybe confusing and not perfectly clear, are pointing to something that is not at all confusing and it's quite clear. And that's the Son of God who is going to come and provide salvation for everybody. In our time, He has come. He's already done what's needed so when we study this today and we're going to be diving into a, a, a talking about transformation that we'll see here in the word this is this is different yet um, no more no more visions today we've moved ahead if you will uh, in many regards w- with this um, comes easier to understand maybe easier to digest but it's it's doing the exact same thing it's pointing to the exact same savior so if you got your Bible, we'll be in Zechariah 7 and 8. We'll be reading both of them. It's kind of long-winded, um, so bear with me. And, if, uh, if you, and then after that, we'll pray, and, and we'll jump in. Um, there we go, Zechariah 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. "'Saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, "'Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years?' "'Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. "'Say to all the people of the land and the priests, "'When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, "'for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? "'When you eat and when you drink, "'do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves?' Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, where her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate. So that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem Each with staff in hand, because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets, thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts Behold, I will save my people from the East Country and from the West Country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and i will be their god in faithfulness and in righteousness thus says the lord of hosts let your hands be strong you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built for before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast neither was there any safety from the foe who for him went out who the foe for him who went out or came in For I set every man against his neighbor, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do, speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord." And the word, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful once again to be able to dive into your word. There's a lot here in these two uh, chapters, Lord, that is um, simultaneously challenging and comforting. And Lord, I think those, those two words oftentimes make up our faith in this world, challenging and comforting. Uh, Lord, I pray as we study this that we are challenged and comforted as we move forward for you in our our personal lives, our work lives, inside of our community, and we try to reach people with good news to tell them the truth of who you are and what you've done. Lord, help us never to have our hearts become diamond hard. Help us not to invest time in ignoring you, but rather to trust you deeper, study your word more, understand you more, Lord, as you transform us so that we may transform those around us through you. Thank you so much for these words. It's in your sense of my prayer. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so, beloved, it's been a minute. Not since we last gathered. I know that was just Sunday. Or sooner, I guess, if you are here Wednesday. But chapter 7, there's a little bit of time between where we ended in the visions and where chapter 7 appears. Roughly two years. And in this time, the temple rebuilding has begun. Um, there 's a lot of overlap here between a lot of the books that we 've been studying and where these prophets align with uh Ezra and Nehemiah and all these folks. This is all happening about the same time they 're coming back from babylon there 's different things happening basically they 're in the midst of rebuilding the temple when chapter seven begins it has the The reconstruction has begun, and as they rebuild the temple, people are wondering, can we be done you know, you know, we've been doing all these things for all this time while we were in exile, and it starts from the folks in Bethel that are wondering about when they can lay off the fasting. So a little bit of a history lesson, there was a lot of, a lot of Jewish feasts and fasts and, and ceremonial events that happened. Four times a year they did this, and this was specifically a repentance, a group repentance for all the things that got them into exile to begin with, the, the things that their forefathers did. Those, those people that sinned against God, that God has told them about here through prophecy, your, your, your fathers did this wrong, and that's why you were in exile. So they started doing this. Let's do some penitence. Let's gather up and officially say we're sorry by fasting four times a year. Now they've come back. Now the temple's being rebuilt. It seems like perhaps things are okay. To be fair, this is four times a year. So this is, you know, once a quarter they did this. And clearly it has become rote for them. They are just doing it because they've always done it. And when they ask if they could stop, God is quick to ask them why they were fasting and mourning to begin with. Why were you we even doing it? <laughs> what was the point? And you can imagine that they were taken aback by this. Well, what do you mean? We were told to do it. God's point here is that, well... If if you were fasting because you were sorrowful about what your forefathers have done that led you into this situation, why would you suddenly no longer be sorry for that? What changed? They still did that. You've still been in exile. There's still people in exile. Why do you want to stop doing that? And he's not done reminding him. How about eating and drinking? So this will be the opposite of that. Who is that for? Right? So you're saying you're fasting for me. God has his doubts. But what about the feasts? Who's that for? Weren't you doing that just for yourselves? Because you were hungry, you're celebrating the good news. Look what we did, we've done this, and we deserve it. God's reminding them that their fast should remind them of their past. The fast is a reminder that where they have come, what they have gone through and endured, why they aren't destroyed, is because God cares for them. They should be in fast and prayer in thankfulness for a merciful God, in mourning for the mistakes of the past, so that they are reminded not to repeat them. The, the purpose here is not just endless punishment. It's not designed to be punitive. They should desire this as a reminder to those. Why do we fast so you can explain to your kids? Well, this is so that we are four times a year reminded not to forsake God, not to give up Spending time in the Word and and ignoring His law and, and adding our own things to it and cheating and stealing from one another and being generally lousy people while still calling ourselves people of God. When we do that, it makes God mad. Our fathers did that and made God so mad that when He said, if you keep doing it, I'm going to send you away, they snubbed their nose at Him and He sent them away. Let us never repeat that. That's why we fast. But they don't get that. They're feasting similarly, similarly should be a reminder of God's mercy. They're celebrating God's goodness. We, we, we are back, and that's wonderful. And the temple is being rebuilt, and that's wonderful. But here we see in these words God very being very clear that it's not done yet. The, the verses we just studied, we read through the four pro, these, these four prophecies, and difficult to understand, but it ends with, and you know, if you abide by my commands, these can be yours, or something along those lines, right? It's, this isn't... I'm just going to do it. it. doesn't matter what you do. God has desires for them, and their actions matter to God. Instead, all this is a chore designed to serve themselves. Fasting we don't want to do anymore. We'll just Can we just replace it with feasts? Is there something else we could do besides feigning that we're really sad because we're really not sad anymore? We deserve to be back here. We've earned it. We've done the hard work. Several of us bought all of our silver and gold and gave it to the... T- I mean, what do you want from us, God. And God's saying, uh, not silver and gold. I want you to put me in a proper place in your heart and in your mind. Then things will be different. But until then, you're still trying to buy your way back into happiness. So, you want to know what I want you to do? Let's keep it simple. This is the word of the Lord to these folks. Render true, true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. Do not oppress, well, anyone. There's a long list there, but it basically encompasses everybody. And do not devise evil against another in your heart. And you can bet when they heard that, they all said, Amen. Amen. Absolutely not. But God reminds them of their ancestors, and now they themselves failed this. You think you've gotten away with it? You think, oh, well, he didn't, you know, if they didn't know that I cheated them in the scales, then maybe God doesn't know either. No, God does know. And he's concerned at what would draw you to cheating those whom are inside your community, much less dealing with the Gentiles that are outside the community. Right, You're you're mimicking their bad behavior when the people would come and cheat the Jewish people out of things. That made them very mad. But ironically, they've begun to do the very same thing to one another. And God doesn't give them a free pass here. This is active failure. This isn't ignorance. There's a saying I remember hearing as a young man that ignorance is not a defense. That sticks in my head all the time. If I'm driving down the road and I don't see a speed limit sign, and so I go 100 miles an hour and I get pulled over, and the officer says, this is a 55 zone. And I say, well, I didn't see a sign. He's going to say, I don't care. (laughs) Ignorance is not a defense. It's on you, incumbent on you as the driver to know the speed limit in this area before you choose to go faster. Well, that's not fair. I didn't know. Why didn't somebody tell me? Not our job. Now, the beauty here is God did tell them. <laughs> they knew the speed limit. It was well posted. And like me, they put their foot down and just went as fast as they wanted to. Well, I like the way the engine sounds, God. That's why I did it. Don't care. Don't speed. Well, I can't believe you're me a ticket There's nobody out here. It's dark. It's late. Whatever. A million excuses. And they've got them. But they are choosing to do the things they're doing. They're not stumbling into it. They're not unawares. Now, we could say, I don't really even remember why we're fasting to begin with. Yeah, well, that's failure uh, to explain what's going on. You didn't talk to anybody. I know there's plenty of kids, and uh, obviously I I hope that Emma is not one of those, that are going to church and have no idea why they're there. If this sounds foreign or crazy, it's not. Right now, there's a whole bunch of people that are in church that have no idea what they're doing there. It's just like this. When can I stop going to church? When I go to college? Can I stop then? Well, if you can't find a church, good, I'm done. Finally, finally, I'm done. I've got my temple built. I'm out of here. This is not very foreign or very distant. This is right here today. In a world where we have become the temple and we don't construct a big building anymore, there's a lot of half finished temples that are done doing the work. Can we be done? I'm so tired of going. When Emma comes and she serves in the booth and she does this diligently and she'll have her own walk with the Lord, but when we come here and we serve as a family, I want her to know and I pray that she knows that this is not about us. It's not about punching a ticket. It's not about doing good works and looking like a good person. It's about serving God and learning about his character. It's about when you she goes up there and she moves those slides back and forth. When I stand here and preach, when James, when we serve, it's because God is glorious and deserves any. An inkling of glory that would come my way goes to him. Everything that's ever been invested into me comes from God. I give it back to him fully. When this comes and goes, or she goes to college, she's somewhere else, and she's sitting in a room, she ought not think, well, I'm finally done with church. No, it's just begun. Now I've got my temple started. Mom and dad helped me. My local church helped me, but now I'm going over here. and What am I going to do with it? Hopefully not abandon it. Church, know that these Jews that are asking this question, if you're digging, you're rolling your eyes, there's probably somebody sitting within 15 feet of you that's asking this very same question right now. And this, it still doesn't sit well with the Lord. In the past, he scattered them and perished their homes. That's exactly what he's reminding them. I have taken, on your behalf for my glory, drastic actions. Drastic actions. Remember what I did. Then we have chapter 8. But God. Chapter 8 where we see him describing, God describing these transformations and the way that he's doing this. In God's economy, you know, we're reading Romans 12, and I don't want to take any of this out of context. We were talking before, and Lee was at a seminar this weekend for women, and the verse, the chapter was Romans 12. Romans 12 is a very close subject matter. to what we're pre- This is not ironic. This is intrinsically beautiful. But she's just been studying about transformation, and I'm preaching a sermon about transformation. We didn't coordinate that, but it is what it is because lo and behold, when you talk about things like regeneration, transformation, sanctification, repentance, salvation, those themes are very, very common, very common for good reason. God explains this reason, his righteous, great, wrathful jealousy for his people. That's the reason. God says, you're mine, and you better act like it. And when you don't, it makes me mad. Now, if you're a parent or if you ever cared for children, you should be able to relate to this. When your kids start doing things that are very frustrating to you and you say things like, you knew better. I taught you better. I raised you better than that. Why do we feel that way? It's, it's because we are slightly embarrassed. We think everyone's going to look at us and think poorly of us because our kids are doing this, that, and the other. So we don't want them to do that. That is not righteous, great, wrathful jealousy. It's great, and it's perhaps wrathful, but it's usually prideful. I don't want to look bad because of my kids. God does not have this problem. We, we might think we can, we can pull the wool over the world's eyes, but God's made it very clear that What the world thinks of me, I know what they think of me, (laughs) and it's dirt. You guys need to be convincing them otherwise, and when you don't, I'm upset at you. Not because, oh, no, they think poorly of me. I know better. I know you could do better. I've told you the rules. You need to trust me. You need to stop fleeing from me. You need to stop doing all this stuff, but you don't. And God's jealous heart then is his same jealous heart now. He desires them then with perfect jealousy. They were his people. You're mine. I know the number of hairs on your head. I know the thoughts. I know the things you will do, the things you have done. I know what's coming. I'm going to save you. It's all going to be taken care of, but you have got to do what I told you to do. And with this, we see some comforting words. The Lord has returned to Zion. It will be called whole again. People will live long lives. There will be lots of kids running around. These people will be from all the places God has scattered them. He's brought them all back. And God will rule in faithfulness and righteousness. Amen. I mean, this is the kind of thing that everybody wants to hear. Even people that don't believe in God, don't know who Jesus Christ is. If you talk about a situation in a world, a city that's peaceful with older folks and younger folks all living together, people from all over the place brought together living in peace and God ruling in faithfulness and righteousness. Oh, man, that sounds pretty good. Vastly different than the world we see today, filled with strife and friction and conflict. None of that. And how are we going to do this? This is where we see these transformations being spelled out one after another. There was once no surety in their work. He describes crops that don't come in, where you work hard and the fruit isn't born. You till the fields and nothing comes up. You're sweating and you're bleeding and you're toiling and you're, maybe it just doesn't come together. One day, no problem. There will be prosperity given from God. We hear people preach about prosperity today. They flip this over. They say, God wants to give you prosperity now. Not later, but now. And if you don't have it now, you've got to change something. You've got to fix it right now. Church, we don't see that here. We may toil and sweat and bleed now, but if we do that for God, if we're doing this for the kingdom We know that someday, every single time we work, there will be fruit born. God will see to it. It's promised right here. Another transformation. Israel has become a curse word to many nations. Now this is because they were rolled over by other countries all the time. There's some jokes that are always made like um, where you take somebody's name after they screw up something. Like uh, if somebody was, let's say, like driving a tractor or a mower and they rolled it over. The next person that gets on the mower, if that person was me, the next person that gets on the mower, you'll say something like, hey, careful, don't crisp that mower. Because, uh, you know, it's bad if you do that, it costs a lot of money. Ooh, he crissed it real bad coming around that corner. That's basically what this is, right? If you got israel that was your entire nation got sacked and plundered and left for dead. So you didn't want that. They use it as a curse. May you get Israel if you say that again to me. Oh, how dare you say that to me? How dare you curse me with that name? But that's the hint here. Your, Israel's name has been a curse because of their standing in the world. If you remember back to some of our, some of our earlier reading here through these minor prophets, there was this talk about, you know, these, uh, these horses and they're standing in the, and nothing's happening. And they're like, well, the world's at peace. But God's not happy with the peace. Yeah, we've plundered Israel and put them at peace. We've shackled them to the ground and taken them prisoner, but there's no war anymore as far as we're concerned. That's not the case here. Soon what we see is they're going to become a blessing to all nations. God's changing a curse into a blessing. People will say Israel and be like, oh, if only we could be like Israel. It's that place where all those people live in peace and God's in control and we just, that'd be so great. In the past, we've seen the Lord has purposed disaster when he was provoked. Right? You test the Lord, you lose. But soon we see the Lord bringing good to Jerusalem. Now when we read these transformations, when we read them, we know how the Bible unfolds. We know that what we're seeing is a larger scale transformation where the curse of the law, for instance, becomes the blessing of salvation through the work of Christ. God's hinting at that, but he's also talking right then and there If they would just do what they need to do, the simple things that God's asked of them. Now we know the Ten Commandments. Here we just see him bringing up four things: do these four, and I will prosper you. They will not do them. God does require them to do this, but the reason for this is not—it's not just arbitrary. Throughout all these transformations, there is a call to action: what needs to be done. There is work. Things to do. They've got to rebuild the temple. They've got to treat each other fairly. They've got to treat other people fairly. Sojourners and other people. Well, you know, we try our best, but we're so busy and tired. Yeah, 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 I know. That's how it's going to be. It's hard work following God. I'll say that again. It is hard work following God. But it is worth it. The other side of not following God is way, way worse than the difficulty of the work. To be clear, the work is not earning them the blessings per se. You can read this over and over. It's not in order to do this, you must do this. Your hard effort has earned you my favor. Their effort and their work should be born of an appreciation, a mind, a heart condition that God is who he said he was. I love the Lord. I will do this for the Lord because he commands it. My work is born of my faith, not the other way around. Their work enables the blessings to happen as God decrees. God said, build the temple, and I will bless you. But remember, it started with God saying. <laughs> it's not dead silence, and they're just out there saying, let's try a temple. Anybody else have any other ideas? God say nothing. And then the temple began. It's like, hey, good job. That was it. It was the temple, like you were solving a mystery. This is no mystery. God is being very clear with what he needs them to do. He wants the temple rebuilt. He wants them to start following the protocol. He wants things to be done a very specific way. And We might ask ourselves, why? Didn't we, haven't we been through this a time or two? You know, when's God going to learn? Well, believe me, God knows. And what he's trying to prove to them is that you will never learn. The same exact call, speak truth, judge truthfully, do not devise evil and love no false oath. And then we see a final reminder. And this guy was born from their very first question. Well, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 7. What about this fasting? They will transform into feasts. Right? You can eventually replace the fasting as a reminder of the sorrow you feel, the guilt and the shame of your ancestors and your current actions, those will be replaced with feasts celebrating not your goodness, but the goodness of the Lord. This is not arbitrarily timed. This isn't just whenever, whenever we've done it. right? We'll see here in, in he describes soon, people will be coming from everywhere. They will all be seeking the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine that in our world, we're like, that sounds great. And they're telling me like, what? What are you talking about Everywhere. We're kind of a joke of a nation. We're we're a curse in their mouths. Why would they be coming here at all? Well, obviously God's talking about something that has not yet happened in their world, right? A world that we see today, that we understand today, would have been foreign to them. Those fasts turning into feasts, TBD. But what God describes as worldwide transformations. Ten men, it says in here, It says 10 men will come from every nation. 10 men is kind of a a Jewish cultural term, just meaning many men. Like when we say 70 times 7 was like infinite, right? That's just the way things work. So when they say 10 men from a nation, that just means many men. So many men from every nation and every tongue. And it says they will take hold of the robe of a Jew. I put that in quotes. Let us go with you, for we have heard that God, God is with you. Does that sound familiar? There's some hints about this, right? We talk about, oh, it's foreshadowing. Hey, you know, that kind of connects to Jesus. It absolutely connects to Jesus. When they talk about trying to hold on to the hem of his garment, these are people that knew the Scripture, that realize that this man is holy. What God's encouraging them to do is become a type of that now. Believe on me. Believe in me. Believe in what we're doing. Follow my commandments. And this can start to happen right away. People will be curious about what's going on today. What's going on? How are they doing this? I, I really want to go. I really want to be there. I want to be a part of that. Now, we know when Christ comes, there's going to be a Jew, Jesus Christ, the Jew, that actually upheld the law and saves all mankind. That's the robe you really want to hold on to. But if you grab my robe, Chris's robe, I better be taking you to Christ. That's my job. That's what he wants them to do. They just can't do it. But it's all right, because the four points we'll talk about today is what God transforms. If you're hearing these words today and you're thinking, "Oh, I've tried this a million times. I can't do it. I've tried to change. I've been through a million things. I've read all these books. I've gone to sessions and counseling and this and the other. And I'm just stuck. I'm stuck where I'm stuck. It ain't gonna happen." I've, I know exactly how these people feel. It just keep screwing up over and over and over and over and over again. I got good news for you. It's not something you're gonna do. God transforms mourning to celebration. And we talk about real honest to God mourning, the stuff where you're at the end of you and there's nothing left, you're out of options, and you fall on your face and you weep and you wish you were dead. That's where God transforms. God transforms worship of self into worship of Him. God transforms religion into relationship. And finally, God transforms sacrifice into salvation. So when it comes to mourning, the celebration, I mean, the world is not getting happier, at least in my opinion. Looking at the world around us, I feel like we are slipping away into people being sadder more often, trying to figure out something that will bring joy, sustaining joy. Try everything. Love. Love. Sex, drugs, money, jobs, power. Everybody is sad. I remember as a young man, before I'd grown up a bit, hearing about really, really rich, famous rock stars killing themselves, movie stars committing suicide, thinking, what on earth? I mean, they got everything fame and fortune. So many people love them. Why? The world will tell you, well, that's a chemical issue and there's all kinds of things. I'm not going to discount any of that. I'm not here, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to get into that space. But I can tell you one thing that's preeminent in those cases. It's people that have reached a pinnacle that the rest of the world thinks will be absolute happiness and they have found it to be isolated and lonely and dark and terrifying, crushing. The world is not getting happier. And ironically enough, we spend a lot of time mourning the good old days. Remember when I was a kid, things were simpler. I say this. I'm guilty of it. This isn't a lecture. Oh, I remember when this church had this, and I remember that other place, and this city used to be like this, and people used to treat each other decent. Yeah? People did used to treat each other decent, and they also used to hang each other from trees. Right? The good old days weren't that good for some people. The reality is the future is what we need to be focusing on. Church, the best is yet to come. If you do not believe that, please talk to us. You have missed the boat. Thanks be to God, but the best is yet to come. We must believe it in, for, in order for others to believe us. If we don't buy that, if all we do is hem and haw about, oh, I, I missed the morning. We used to have really good times crying it out. You're missing a celebration. You're sitting outside complaining that, Are we, I'm not ready to go. You know, I just I feel like everything used to be so easy and simple. Now everything's just so darn complicated. The world's just running away from us. Yep. Exactly what we see described in the world. The world is fleeing from God as fast as it can in any direction, trying to find peace. We know better, but we aren't going to do it. God's going to do it. Do not take this message and say, "I got to transform my morning into celebration." You will fail. You'll probably fall deeper in the morning and now be have another thing you'll be bummed about. I couldn't even be. I can't even act happy. Well, you can maybe act happy for a while, but wouldn't it be great to be happy? To have joy? to have trust and faith and belief in something that's coming that's going to be an annihilation of sadness, gone forever, no more tears in heaven. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. That's crazy for me to think about, but it's going to be gone. There's no sin. There's no sorrow. That's good news, and that's God's work. God transforms worship of self into worship of Him. Now, I'll tell you, we leadership here, work hard to make sure that we worship God alone. We're doing our honest best. But we can only do that work thanks to the Holy Spirit. When we're trying to discern what it is we're going to talk about, how we approach different subjects, how we preach, what songs we sing, the manner in which we communicate, we rely on the Holy Spirit to do it because if we don't, we will worship ourselves. Bet money on that. If you do not lean on, this, lean on the Holy Spirit, if you do not trust God to do what God does, we will end up worshiping ourselves, our church, our city, our state, our country, some aspect of mankind that we think is worthy of, of worship and praise. We'll, I'll sign that to God, say we're worshiping God, but we'll really be worshiping something we think about us as being important. We want people to know. The good news is, if that's where you are, God will transform that. That desire to worship, the reason we hold people in such high esteem, we love celebrities, is because there's a part of us that wants to worship. We're built to do it. We're built in God's image. God seeks to glorify himself, worship himself, as well he should. Who are made in his image? We have a desire to do it. But we hate God, so we put everything else in its place to try to worship it. Nature, family, ancestors, you name it, buildings, high towers, low holes. How about the sea? It's very big. Look how deep. The... What, what are we pointing out today? Oh, well, the sun turned a weird color. Let's worship it. This is human history. Find something and worship it. We're out of things. We worshiped everything. Other the James worship me. I got a promise. Watch this. You know, I, can make my, uh, I can make my finger disappear. Well, hey, I worship that guy. Boom. He's a, he's, he knows something. He's close to God. Endlessly. That's where we find ourselves. And what God says is, I'm not going to destroy and annihilate that and bring it about again. I'm going to transform that. What you used to do in that regard, when you get when you're when you're following me, when I'm changing your life, I'll take it where it needs to go. I'll instill it in you. I could tell you how I can't rather I can't tell you how comforting I how comforting I find it that I cannot adequately worship God without God's help. I have no secret sauce. There's no special words, there's no chant or decree that we do as elders that allow us to somehow preach the Word of God rightly. I'm reliant on the Holy Spirit, the correction from others. If I get up here and say something that's wrong, which will and probably has happened, someone can come up and say, that's not right. I believe it says this, let's pray about it. You know, you're right, I'll, I'll, probably should, I'll say something. That's not right. It's the Holy Spirit working through me that does anything good from this pulpit. Any worship of myself gets transformed into worship of Him by God. It will not happen without Him. But lastly, we have to understand that others need the same transformation. I'm as guilty as anybody to look at the world around me and say, well, that's a mess. But do I pray for transformation of that ministry? No. I decry it. That's easier. As well, I want people to know the truth. But if God can transform my worship of me into worship of him, then he can transform anybody's worship of anything into worship of him if they know the truth. If they know the truth. God transformed religion into a relationship. There's no vice versa here, by the way. We transform relationships into religion all the time. Right? Lots of marriages, I think, fail because they start off in a very, a very relationship-oriented thing. And then over time, it becomes a religion that nobody wants to participate in anymore. No one's really engaged but they're going through the motions. We do marriage things, the protocol of marriage, but my heart is long left. The good news is, if what you've got today is a religion, if you're sitting here like these Jews were in this church, hearing my voice in some other place, and you're going through the motions, you show up every Sunday, and you put your suit on. I was listening to the radio the other day, and easy like Sunday morning came on, and I always chuckled to myself. There's a longstanding joke that, you know, that whoever wrote that song didn't take kids to church on a Sunday morning right? But, like, this notion of, like, yeah, man, like, that's it's a uh, my Sunday mornings are easy. I, I mean, they're it's a lot of work, but it's I'm done. Bing bang did it again. I've been coming to this church for 20 years. I serve on a, a committee every three years, and my name comes up in the committee lottery. I'm doing the work. I'm doing the work. Who's Jesus? He's the uh, he's my boss. My boss is a carpenter. Well, you know, you're not wrong. But these are great answers for somebody that doesn't know what's going on. If you've ever worked at a job, you know what I'm talking about. There are some people in a workplace that will die for that workplace. They wear the shirts when they're off the clock. They talk about their job endlessly as if it's core to their being. They're really proud of their work, of their company, my company then there's others that work, and you pay me to come. <laughs> it's an agreement. I have a contract. I do this, you give me that, that's that. There's no loyalty here. We're not deep, you know, deep long friendship, none of that. There's a lot of times in our work walk here where we are the latter. We are showing up. We're doing the work, and our payment is everlasting life. It's a retirement plan. Yeah, I'm punching the card, doing the work. Don't know Jesus, don't really need to know him, I'll know him eventually. I'll get time to hang out with him when I'm in heaven. <sighs> I wouldn't be too sure of that, right? Right, I said, Lord, Lord. Now, you might think I'm crazy. Hey, that's not nice to say. It's on my words. This is the Bible. I called you Lord, Lord. And Christ's word, Christ's word, depart from me, I never knew you. There's going to be a lot of people told to depart from Christ that are going to be furious. They're going to be drug away from him, kicking and screaming and cursing him. Oh, some savior you are. I did all that work, and now this. Now you don't know me? I was there every Sunday, early. I unlocked a building. Yeah. If that's you and you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's cutting me deep, I don't know. Good news, God transforms that every second of every day. This is not a message of desolation. This is good news. God will transform those meager efforts into eternal relationships. Relationships that will sustain themselves forever. I'll know people. It says we'll recognize people in heaven. Mike, I'll see him. I'll recognize him in heaven. We're going to talk about this for all eternity. All of you here. If you're in, you're in. I can't wait to see you up there. We can talk about that. We can joke about this day. Remember when you said we were going to say hey? Look, at we're saying hey. I know, it's so cool. This is a promise from God and we rely on it. Not me. Not you. I'm not saying bootstrap it. I'm just working. we we'll work harder. No. Find who Jesus Christ is and devote your hard work into that relationship. Watch it blossom. You might find that suddenly you're still coming to church and opening the doors up, but you're doing it for a different reason now. Now you're not doing it so you can get into heaven. You're doing it because you're starting to grasp the sacrifice. And that's the last point. God transforms sacrifice into salvation. Anybody have a story of sacrifice that leads to salvation? Anybody have a story of somebody, anybody, not you necessarily, of a sacrifice, what we in the world would definitely consider a sacrifice, leading to other people coming to know Jesus? I do. I probably know 25 of them. Now, to be clear, there's one sacrifice that saved us all, and that was Jesus Christ. So me laying down my life for another, that is a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice that leads directly to salvation. But what we see is through Christ's example of ultimate sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God, our ability to sacrifice ourselves, even as living sacrifices, once again, not my words, but God's, has an impact to the kingdom that leads to salvation. Our sacrifices, even though they are small, are used by God to save. They do not save, but they are used by God to save. There's an analogy with salvation that I used to hear a long time when I was growing up that I liked. And that was that I was in the water and I'm drowning and then he throws me a life preserver. And I choose to take it. <clears throat> That's my choice. The salvation came from God, but I say, I'll take it. And up up I go to the boat and that sounds good. As I studied, it's dawned on me that that analogy is imperfect. In many ways, that analogy is quite wrong. The reality is I'm dead on the bottom of the ocean, drowned, without life. And he reaches to the bottom of the ocean, and he breathes life into me, and pulls me onto the boat. I go from death to saved. Eternal life. Then what happens is I jump back in the water because I'm stupid, and I don't understand the gift that has been given to me. I don't understand how great a God was that could reach to the bottom of an ocean and resurrect my cold, dead soul to life. And the only way that he did it was by going to the bottom of the ocean himself, dying, coming back to life, getting back on the boat, and bringing me with him. And I'm like, yeah, but I like to swim, so I'm going to get back in the water. It's a mess. Me jumping back to the water and drowning is not a sacrifice. Me getting back into the water, me helping somebody else get back out of the water, oh, I might get injured in that process. That may have an impact on other people. Who knows? But Jesus Christ did the thing that matters, and our efforts matter because his effort really mattered. So we ought to sacrifice we can trust that our suffering for his sake will sow seeds of salvation. Amen. If what I'm doing is work for God because God is good and he's commanding me to do it, not for my glory, not for my salvation. These, these aren't, you know, marks a, on a board or like, oh, you got 38, you know, good sacrifice moves, so that means you get a, you know, another, here's a third crown. Okay, three crowns, great. What am I supposed to do with those crowns? Throw them at the feet of Christ. These crowns are all because of what you did in me. My ability to lead anybody to you is because you've changed my heart and a way to lead them to you. right? You've, you've resurrected them. you put them on the boat. They jump back in. I jump in and bring them back. I don't know what's going on. Now, but, but I'm here because of you and what you've done in me. These gifts, these, these accolades, this glory belongs to you. That's the real sacrifice. Is saying, I don't deserve it. I don't want it. Give it to God. What about us? Church, are we ready to transform? And if we are, what areas, need, what areas need transformation to align with God's call for us? The first one's probably going to be, yes, absolutely, amen, I'm ready to transform. Good, where? I don't know. Let's think about it. And when it comes to that, what can we do for one another to encourage us to be ready for many men to follow us? Right, with, this, is, this is prophesied. We are living in a world that God has constructed, and his prophecy is, is preeminent, and here we are. We should be ready for people to hear good news and start following, wanting to know, asking us, can I come, can I listen? Is this true? I've never heard it said that way. What's this mean to me? What do I need to do? What steps do I need to take? And finally, let us boldly pray for God to transform us now, not in two months, not in six months, today. If we answer yes to this, and we can start lining out some of these areas that we want to transform in, God gave us great examples here of the things that he's going to redeem. Do we have misplaced worship? Do we have doubts that are clouding our ability to work for the Lord? We don't need to fix that. We need to have God start changing us right now. And he can do it. Let's boldly pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these challenging uh, passages, Lord. Lord, I'll confess, you know, when I put these uh, sermons together, I change them a lot because I want to, (laughs) I want to communicate clearly what the word says. And I think there's very clear challenges here, Lord, but I'm always, always wary of sounding overbearing or, or maybe corrective or something along those lines. Lord, I, I hate lecturing people about doing better. But what we see here, Lord, is you're doing this in a manner that says, I need you to trust me and together we'll do better. Lord, I pray that's what people take away from today's message, if nothing else. You transform. You transform. Now, we will be transformed. We're going to be part of all these transformations. But you're doing it. And, uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for that. I am so thankful that everything good in me, in us, in this church is from you. Not our hard work or our sweat equity. That's great and you use it and you, you love it and you call us to do it, but that is not, it doesn't originate with us, Lord. It originates with you. Help, help us to remember that. Help us to be able to convey that clearly to a world that thinks that maybe we just have our act together or we are doing something right or wrong. Lord, it's you. You're the difference here. Thank you so much for that. Senior your sons of my prayer. Amen.